welcome to Death Holler, the place of haunted hearts and haunted homes. We welcome you to Death Manor, the home that boasts the most ghosts. Come on in. We've been expecting you. Take a look around. You might see someone that you recognize. Do you hear those voices? That's just the Reverend Dr. Death and La Arena. They're so happy to see you. Sit back and relax. Make yourself at home. Your new home. And remember, when you're in Death Holler, listener discretion is always advised. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to Death Holler. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. Death, and joining me today is the spirit I hired to teach two unruly demon spawn, La Urena. Whatever you do, Urena, don't call me about these little bastards. I'm much too busy, wealthy, and important to care about them. Just, just don't do it. Well, you know, I have some, uh, I have a confession, is I was actually trying to uh, take them in place of my own children, and uh, I'm going to be honest, it's not going well. Yeah, I, I think they uh, got some other spirits inside of them. You might want to ditch those and move on to something else. That's your uh, goal in life. Other spirits? And there's other spirits in the water as well. And I'm like, they are not welcome. I, there's only room for one. <laughs> there can only be one. Uh, this episode is a mega-sized tribute to the Henry James novel, The Turn of the Screw, with about 30 adaptations but the film. We decided to cover three of the most well-known <laughs> ones, and I threw in a bonus prequel as an Attack of the Bees, and Donnie G joined in on that and gave his own view of that one. So we'll see how that goes. Um, that's right, dear listeners. Get ready to have a trip to the English countryside as we visit the great good estate, and otherwise known as Bly Manor, and pay respects to its many inhabitants, both living and dead. We will discuss the innocence, the turning, and the haunting of Bly Manor. Uh, but first, if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate if you could uh, take time to like, comment, subscribe on whatever uh, podcast platform you prefer. It helps get more visibility on podcast listings and helps us grow. Also, consider following us on social media. Our new TikTok channel, Death Holler Pod, and we uh, can be found on Instagram and Facebook under Death Holler Podcast. We appreciate everyone who listens and hope with the show. Yes, and as for <clears throat> video, excuse me, uh, we are working on video again. La Arena is having studio problems here, working on those, because I do know that the video is definitely liked a lot, so we will have those up and running again here soon. Thank you, everybody, for the patience, and now it's time for Attack of the Bees. What is that? What is that? What is it? Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! I'm my eyes! <laughs> the movie I'm discussing today is The Nightcomers. A very tantalizing name, I guess. Very interesting. <laughs> uh, from 1971. Directed by Michael Winner. 
uh, written by Michael Hastings, uh, who did the screenplay. And of course, Henry James uh, is credited because it's based upon characters in the novel Turn of the Screw. You'll be hearing that a lot on these podcasts. Uh, principal players for this one is Marlon Brando, who's playing Peter Quint, a uh, roughneck Irish groundskeeper, uh, kind of plays the role of the cool uncle. And he is a very big BDSM enthusiast. So there you go, folks. Uh, or that's there's a reason that Donnie G might be covering this. <laughs> uh, of course, Brando's known for the Godfather saga, Apocalypse Now, uh, and uh, Island of Doctor Moreau, and uh, On the Waterfront. So well, some of the bigger movies that he's been in. Very big name actor. Kind of interested in seeing him in this one because he's kind of younger in this movie, and um, it's I, I don't know. I've always used to seeing just him in, in a role of an older gentleman, and like he's you know he he does not not the character he's playing in this at whatsoever. Yeah, this is like his glory days, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean it 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 looks like I mean like he was uh, you know leading man material or something this time, even though he's kind of got a skullet going on this movie just slightly, but I mean still it's. Uh, you know, you can tell that he's, you know, kind of a suave, you know, like leading man more as opposed to just like the, I don't know, like monstrous, like obese old man that you always, that, that he got cast as for the rest of his life that, that we know of. So, uh, Stephanie Beecham plays Miss Jessel, uh, who is the tutor, a freak in the sheets and a tragic victim. <laughs> she, she, Sorry. Uh, seven days a week, by the way, she, <laughs> she appreciates that. So, uh, she was in Dracula AD 1972, Schizo, and Seminoid. There's kind of a theme here, folks. Uh, she was in a lot of movies where she might have uh, got her boobies out. So there you go. <laughs> Witch's Hammer and tons of TV involving Dynasty, or including Dynasty and an episode of Charmed, of all things. Oh, that wow. would have been like later on. Thora Hurd plays Mrs. Gross, uh, nanny and maid and a busybody. Uh, and uh, she wasn't in a whole lot that I'd seen before, so I didn't really listen to anything for her. We have Christopher Ellis playing Miles, a rambunctious, incestuous, and murderous boy. Ugh. Uh, he was in uh, the Pumpkin Eaters. The uh, and this is weird, but but it ties into uh, some trivia about the innocence. That's the reason I included that. We have Verna Harvey playing Flora, who is odd, incestuous, murderous girl. Uh, she was in a, a movie called or Shadows or a TV show, I guess it was. So it's a horror anthology for children. We have Harry Andrews uh, playing the master of the house, which is a rich bastard that felt obligated to take on the kids when his cousins died. Probably didn't hurt that he inherited her fortune as well. Uh, you know, hey, got to take those perks and <laughs> dump the kids off on other people too because, hey, why, why would you keep, keep around them? Um, he was in Burke and Hare, uh, Theater of Blood, Man of La Mancha, and Watership Down, which that's some childhood trauma that's never going away. Anna Polk, who was the, playing the new governess at the end of the film, um, the, the one that the turn of the screw is actually about, uh, it's kind of this, this being the prequel that leads into that. Uh, she's the new tutor that's destined to go mad and see ghosts and potentially kill Miles later on. And she was in Tower of Evil, The Frozen Dead, The Skull, and The Eyes Screaming. So what's this movie about? Well, it's the prequel to the events in The Turn of the Screw, wherein Bly Manor's owner and the children's only living relative fucks off back to England because he's tired of dealing with the little bastards. (laughs) 
and he leaves Mrs. Gross in charge of running the house and Miss Jessel in charge of educating the children. Mr. Quinn is kept on the look after the grounds, but is pretty much told that he doesn't really have to do a whole lot to keep his job. And that's straight from uh, the master of the house's uh, own lips to him. So he's, he told him they could basically do whatever he wanted and secret love affairs are had BDSM and rope play turn around a seemingly unwilling partner and some creepy gross children commit murder in the hopes that the spirits of their favorite adults are forever trapped in blind manner with them. What the fuck? Um, yeah, so basically just this movie is is that we get to see, because in Turn of the Screw, you have Mrs. Gross, who is kind of like, I mean, it's set in Victorian time, so she's, or around that, where, so she's one of those people that, like, you know, sex is taboo, and especially between people of different, you know, um, uh, classes in society, which is definitely what Mrs. Jess, Miss Jessel and, and Peter Quint are. I mean, you know, one's just a commoner, one's more of, you know, like a, uh, a lady, you know, as it were, and, and especially unbecoming of a lady is to enjoy sex in this time period whatsoever. But, uh, the movie basically gives you the background on that. And it kind of shows you that Peter Quint's like basically the only, uh, adult who kind of spends time with these kids outside of Miss Jessel. Uh, you know, she's, she's the educator. She's, uh, she's, you know, nice enough to them and all that. But like, you know, Peter Quint's actually the one that treats them like they're, family like he you know plays with the kids he you know like and he's and he's kind of respectful in that way i mean like he you know like you got everybody else who kind of is hands off for these poor kids but they he shows them affection where they don't normally get it at um but he's got a dark side to him and so peter quinn at night has been hooking up with miss jessel because she's a good looking lady and um at first she seems in the movie, like she's unwilling, like, you know, she's not into it, but it's one of those things where stop, you know, but she gives him the eyes like, no, you know, keep going type thing, which he wouldn't have stopped anyways. Cause he's, that's just how they portray him in the movie. But, um, like it goes from her, like acting like she doesn't really want to have anything to do with him, like toward the beginning of the movie toward like, you know, one scene at the end where he's not the one that ends up in the room, but Mrs. Gross, she's kind of got a titty flopped out waiting <laughs> for him, you know, kind of playing coy, like, you know, uh, you know that you want to, I, she even says it. I think she's looking their way. She's like, Oh, don't come in here tonight. Mr. Quint. You know, it's one of those things. Oh God. Um, <laughs> And so anyways, uh, Peter Quint, but like he, he likes the rougher sex. He, uh, he doesn't just like Miss Jessel to, uh, you know, cater to his fondling and all that sort of thing. He, he gets rope out and, you know, beats about her a little bit, you know, playfully and ties her up and, and goes that route about it. So it's kind of got all that worked into it. Sticks and stones uh, may break his bones, but chains and whips excite him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that song is pretty much made after him. And so anyways, through the course of the movie, we see the effect that the, the, the creepy thing is, is that the kids are watching, uh, Miss Jess on Peter Quint, even though they're not supposed to be, and they're not invited to see them by no means. It's not that kind of a film, but they're like watching through like half, you know, partially open doors or something like they, you know, especially miles. Who's the older of the oh, two. God. And like whenever he sees Peter Quint do something to Miss Jessel, he starts doing that to his sister. Oh and there's dear a, God! There's a, there's a very creepy scene in the middle of the movie where uh, uh, Miles ties his sister up and says, "No, we're having sex. We're having the sex. Don't you know?" And it's like, "Don't run away." 
and uh, Miss Gross catches them and like, you know, that he outright tells them, you know, the two of them say that. It's like, we were just having the sex. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with us. And no. Of course, you know. How old are the kids in this film? Uh, they're older than they are in any other version of this. Okay. Well, I, I take that back. The turning has the older turning kids. Has. But... Okay, yeah. Because I, I noticed that of the films, uh, they all have different age ranges, but they're weird no matter what. In yes. each in each storyline that we're going to address, um, they look like they're closer to like the. They look like they're twins. First of all, they look like they're very close in age, as opposed to Miles being like Dress Clover and his sister, and they both look like they're about twelve to thirteen. Oh so, my god, this is crazy. Um, <clears throat> there's also a setup for the movie where Peter Quint is talking to the kids, and they ask him like what his thoughts are because they've lost their parents. And there's a scene where they're actually burying the. This is brought up in a lot of the other variants of the the movie or the book, uh, where they 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 talk about how they their their bodies were not they didn't have them because they died in another country. So they were burying basically empty coffins, and you see that scene in this movie, like they're burying the the family. And uh, they ask Quint, because they're closest to him, like what his thoughts are on the afterlife. Because they already know that Miss uh, Jessel is, you know, she's all about praying and God. So they've heard that side of it. But Peter Quint basically tells them, he's like, he doesn't believe there's anything else. That whenever you die, you basically, you know, are here on earth and you stay here. And that sets up the end of the movie, because at the end of the movie... The kids kill both Miss Jessel and Peter Quint in order for the two of their souls to be forever trapped at Bly so that they'll always be with them. Yes. And so the kids are the ones that murder them. Like in all the other versions of the story, you know, it's that Peter Quint got drunk one night due to some kind of falling out or whatever with Miss Jessel. He uh, fell in and killed him, or he fell off a horse and died, and then Miss Jessel committed suicide thereafter because she, you know, uh, her heart was broken. Well, in this version, um, what happens is is that Peter Quint, uh, you know, has a very passionate, I mean, set up by the children too, which is even creepier, but the, the because they, you know, Mrs. Gross has been trying to keep, you know, Peter Quint, or has actually at this point in the movie forbidden Peter or Quint from getting inside the house whatsoever, the children uh, arrange it to where Mrs. Gross is trapped in, inside their tree house without a way out of it. It's high up in a tree, and so the, the two, Peter, they arrange it with Peter Quint and Mrs. Jessel can meet they start you know having you know relations with each other and uh miss Jessel in the middle of them you know they're starting their lovemaking session mentions that she could never see herself moving uh, Peter Quint says why don't since I can't come to the house anymore why don't you just move in with me and she makes a comment which is a literal slap in the face to him saying I could never be uh you know caught in such a pauper's you know place or whatever Ooh. I would never you know being that you know low of a place he gets extremely pissed off beats the shit out of her and then she leaves and she and at that point she has decided she's leaving the mansion altogether she's not gonna she's done with him she's done with you know even though she still loves him she can't she's not gonna put up with that and she's not gonna stay at the mansion any longer yeah well the kids know that, so Flora, and also Flora knows that Miss Jessel can't swim, gets Miss <laughs> Jessel to take her out on the water in a boat, and then whenever she gets out there in the middle of the lake where you always see Miss Jessel and all the other variants of the, the movie because she's supposedly drowned in the lake, uh, she uh, Flora turns the bo- boat over, lets Miss Jessel drown right in front of her, and then like you know goes off on her happy way because she knows that Miss Jessel's trapped there with her, in her mind at least. 
at this point, Peter Quint finds, or, you know, doesn't know what happened to Miss Jessel. He just knows that she's not around anymore. He's very upset over that. He's drunk off his ass coming back one afternoon. He, uh, he happens to find her body washed up on the shore of the lake. And, it, and, and right after he finds it, Miles finds him, and they've set it up perfectly. There was a scene earlier in the movie where he's teaching Miles how to shoot a bow and arrow as uh, you know, to improve his archery skills. And he goes from where Miles can't hit anything, you know, the broadside of a barn to where he actually, you know, hit pinpoint accuracy. Well, Miles uses that ability against Peter Quint, shoots him multiple times with a, with an arrow and then dumps his body in like this uh, little boggy, uh, uh, muddy hole. And like in the hopes that his spirits trapped there now on Bly Manor's, you know, state. So, uh, we basically in the movie with the two kids having killed both of their, you know, the, the people that they were closest to and the new governess or the new teacher who is the one in turn of the screw showing up at their gates right after they've killed both of them. <laughs> do you see the look on my face? You probably do. <laughs> it's a very interesting take on the story because yeah. they always present the children as being like, you know, victims of the potential spirits of the two, you know, but in this one, they were the ones that actually caused all the death and murder. And, uh, and Mrs. Gross is just, I mean, she's hateful as hell. Like she's very pin up in her ways and like, you know, she's the one that kind and there's a, and that feeds in well into the story, the, the turn of the screw as well, because whenever she, she feeds into the hysteria and the psychotic uh, delusions that the new governess has about the ghost, because she knew the illicit affair between the two of them. And like, you know, she was always bad talking the two of them and that caused the, the new governess to kind of, you know, um, read too much into stuff that, she probably wouldn't have thought about otherwise. Yeah, this is a completely different take of what I'm used to with these stories because I only watched one film, and then, of course, I watched the um, the Bly Manor, which every episode is based off of, like, uh, a chapter or something of the books or a story of the book. It's actually based on a lot of every chapter is, is thematically tied to another of Henry James's novels oh, or yes. stories. That, there we that, go. Yeah. That, yeah. That kind of build this uh, story for it. So this is definitely an interesting take, as you said, it's like, it is completely different. And it's, I don't know. I was very surprised by it because I wasn't expecting much. I mean, I hadn't heard about the movie other than like, I looked up a list of like the, the top, you know, adaptations and I got down to like the top four and this was the fourth one of the, of the ones listed. And, and I got to read about it and I started watching it. I'm like, this is actually a very different and interesting take on the story. Well, yeah, because in the, in the show and in the other movie that we're going to review, the kids came off especially Miles, really pervy, but it's for a different reason. Yeah. It's not, be it's, yeah, it's not because they're it, actually incestuous, but it does come off that way. Yeah, and well, and it's also, I mean, it's supposed to be hinted that like Peter Quint's like spirit is the one that, that causes yes. them to be pervy that way. But and in this movie, they kind of, sh in a roundabout way, lead into that a little in the sense that, uh, Peter Quint, even if he doesn't possess Miles, Miles watched him engage in sex, and he's got an idea of what sex is supposed to be like. And it's very, even for like now, I mean, BDSM is not that accepted, but for Victorian times, oh, yeah. I mean, mm -mm, mm -mm. 
Um, so anyways, as far as my rating, just the Nick Cage, actually, I think it's an enjoyable movie. You know, it's, it's worth watching. If you've, you've seen all the other versions of this, it's a neat lead into it. Uh, just my Nick Cage rating though. It's uh, similar to a movie that Nick Cage did called looking glass for the themes of BDSM sex. And there's also murder involved in that. It's like, you know, uh, Nick Cage in that one is, uh, is, got like a new motel that he's, uh, that he's became an owner of and like him and his wife. And they basically watch scenes of this other lady, uh, both conduct BDSM sex and get murdered. So it's kind of thematically <laughs> linked that way to it. Holy shit. <laughs> Um, but I really want to hear what Donnie G had to say about this movie in particular, the, the, some the rope play scene, if that's what I think that he might've reviewed. So I, let's see what he had to say about it. I wonder if he got the right movie this time. <laughs> and now it's time for another episode of, I think I downloaded the wrong movie. Hello everybody, it is Donnie G and today I am actually going to be tagging along with the good doctor in La Urena and we'll be breaking down a specific scene in the 1971 horror classic The Nightcomers. And just for reference, if you want to forego the entire movie and go straight to it, it picks up right at the 30 minute mark. So the entire scene starts out when the groundskeeper of an affluent English family sneaks into the family's child caretaker while she's sleeping. He's careful not to wake her up as he ties one of her wrists to the bed. And as he ties the second wrist, she jerks up and realizes exactly what it is that he's doing. Now, I wouldn't exactly call it consensual at first, but at the same time, she didn't exactly say no either. So the scene cuts from her being tied to the bed and then jumps from her being bound in an elaborate hogtie configuration. From there, that's when the action begins. Now, I wouldn't call it X-rated by any means, but closer to the NC-17 level, but for what it is, I wouldn't call it bad by any stretch. The background music was exactly what it was supposed to be in the background <laughs> and not overbearing at all. And the transitions from each position, they were smooth and seamless. Now on this one, I'm going to give it two different ratings. And you'll understand why once I give them. On a porn level, I'm going to give it two eggplants. But on a production level, I'm going to give this three, three and a half. Now, it's not a bad scene. It's just not something that you can really beat your dick to. <laughs> and that's it for me today, friends. Uh, as always, you can follow me on Instagram at BigBaldMFER. And I've also got a TikTok now. You can follow me there, too, at, same thing, BigBaldMFER. And once again, friends, get fucked. Alrighty. Well, he's he's completely right. It when it starts out, you can tell that it's not fully consensual, but she does not give him any inclination that she's against it either. So, <laughs> no, stop, stop and, it. But it does progress. To, like I said, literally later in the film, she's sitting there with one tit just flopped out and just kind of like her head to the side, like, "Oh, I'm totally asleep. Don't come yeah. in here and do this to me again." <laughs> oh my God, what are you doing? Stop. <laughs> Stop stopping. I want you to get over here and unstop. 
Um, hey, at least he got the right movie this time. He got the right movie. I think he downloaded the right movie this time. What? Wow, that is to be commended. <laughs> Uh, well, before we move on, do you think this would be a movie that you at some point in the future would be interested in seeing just for the differences? Uh, yes, for the differences alone. Um, not huge on sex scenes and movies. I, I, for me, it irks me and it takes away just like you don't like, you know, rape scenes in particular. And granted, this is not a rape scene by any means. It doesn't sound like it. Um, you know, it, for me, it takes away from the movies. And so... There's that, but for the differences, yes, because let me tell you, after all the movies and shows I have been watching to be able to put these episodes together that we are, I'm fucking over the same story. <laughs> and I'm it not was, over it. It's was, a good story, but. I, I'll be, I think I watched it between, I watched The Turning first, and then I watched this, and then I watched The Innocence, and it was good to have the break between the two of them. Absolutely. So it, it was a nice refresher for sure. Yeah, and it actually leads in very well to The Innocence. I think that's what they used as the basis because it, of all the movies and shows that we've seen, like I could see this actually being a fairly credible prequel to that movie versus some of the other ones. Yeah. Um, but moving into that, we can just get right into the discussion for that movie. Uh, we got The Innocence that was in 1961, uh, directed by Jack Clayton written by Henry James, Turn of the Screw, story originally, and William Archibald, and of all people, Truman Capote wrote up the screenplay for this. Uh, and uh, that's a big-time thing because Truman Capote is, like, famous for, uh, I believe it was uh, In Dark Blood or something like that, it was, like, one of the first uh, major uh, true crime novels that ever came out, and, like, he, he was the writer of that, so... Kind of inter- and he was writing that. This is a little bit of trivia f- up front. He was in the middle of writing that book whenever he was given the the screenplay for this, and he and and he and he took about a year off from writing that novel to write this movie, and then went back to it. Oh well. Um, I believe that's the name of it. I could be wrong on that. I I didn't really research like the. I mean, it's probably in the trivia too later on which book he wrote but he he is very famous for writing like one of the first big true crime novels that was ever you know really caught on and got people into that genre uh john mortimer was brought in for a short little stint to kind of like you know tweak the dialogue and and make it more victorian and it's like you know delivery but and a few more script editions but it was mainly from my understanding truman capote wrote the bulk of the the movie music is by uh georges Arick. Uh, budget, it was 430,000 British pounds, and then uh, it ended up making a North American box office of 1.2 million. Now, I don't know if that was really that great of a difference because British pounds have, I mean, maybe not at that time, but they've been pretty far removed from the U.S. dollar for a good long while. So I don't know if that really was that much of a, you know, uh, profit. Yeah. Um, but I've heard that the blame on that is uh, in the, the company who made the movie because, and I want to say it was, it was one of the big ones. It might've been universal, but whoever, whoever did it, uh, one of the problems was, is that they marketed it totally wrong. Like they have this, this old style Gothic, uh, you know, ghost movie and the trailer for it is just, I mean, Joe Dante did it like on, you know, like covered it on his like YouTube or whatever he has, where he kind of discusses like bad movie trailers. 
and it is completely selling you a film that you don't get. It's like selling you a William Castle style, you know, like shocker movie where there's like skeletons jumping out at you and all this other shit where none of that happens in the movie. So okay. if it didn't if it didn't make as much, it's because they didn't market it nowhere near what they should have. See, I was thinking when you said that they didn't market it properly that it was marketed maybe as like a romance type film because of Marlon Brando and you know, maybe showing some a little bit of sexiness without going too far into showing the BDSM. Now, now this is a different movie. We, oh, this yes, is not yes, yes. I'm Marlon sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. totally mistaken that. But no, they, they, you would think that you're right. You would think that they would market this as more like a, you know, like, uh, you know, like the, I mean, more like the slow gothic story that it is, which would be hard to market. I'll give them credit for that. But literally the trailer for this is like, be shocked as the, you know, the spirits of blind matter, you know, uh, you know, uh, attack a young governess or whatever. It's like, they really over dramatized it. Like it's nowhere near what the movie is. Yeah. Uh, principal player having this is Deborah Kerr, who's playing Miss Giddens. Um, she is the governess, the one who teaches the kids. Uh, she was in the King and I, uh, Black Sisters, and, and the original Casino Royale in the 1967 version. And by all accounts, this is her best acting she did in her career was in this movie. Wait, really? Not uh, Casino Royale? No, in the in the Innocence. Wow. Yeah, by all I mean, like her portrayal of the governess in this movie is like one of the top horror movie actress roles that's like you know as far as like the the ratings that's out there like they really by all accounts she you know like she is one of the top ones for how she did this character we have uh, pamela franklin who we've already discussed on the legend of hell house she was the female uh, reverend and psychic in that movie at much later age of course uh playing the little girl flora in this film and of course, she's the one that's actually being taught, you know, about uh, by the governess, and potentially she sees Miss Jessel's ghost, but uh, that's up for debate, and I'll get into that in a little bit in my discussion. Hopefully, not doing the sex. Oh no, she they they don't have the weird sex in this. The way that they play the kids in this one is that Miles is more obsessed with death, and he's kind of got this weird like death thing that he, or, you know, like yeah. angle. He's like, you know, talks about that more often. And then Flora just has this weird like she's she's one of those creepy kids that kind of stares at you yeah. and kind of like says random things. That's just <laughs> like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you know, and. And that's why, you know, Miss uh, Giddens or whatever starts to think that they're possessed because they're, but you got to remember, like, that's the thing about this story. She is coming into this after these kids have lost their parents. They have lost their two, uh, you know, most familiar adults after their parents, you know, in Peter Quint for Miles and Miss Jessel for Flora. So these kids have experienced more death than most kids have, well, you know, have until, you know, they're like, you know, you know, late teenagers, early twenties. And so for this woman to come in here, of course, she's from a very sheltered life. Miss Giddens is and, and hasn't dealt with a lot, but for her to come in here and start seeing these kids acting weird, like she just jumps to the worst conclusion possible, not realizing that they they're probably traumatized and, you know, yeah. and that's probably why they act the way they do. Well, and they're pretty, even though like maybe I think miles, I don't know so much in this film, but in other adaptions goes to school, you don't really hear that much about Flora doing that. So they're pretty disconnected from society and they live in, on on this huge grounds, that's why they live in a man. It's called Bly Manor because it's a huge mansion on a huge plot of land. 
Yeah, Flora is, by all accounts, in the original story, and this never really left the grounds, and Miles is the only one who's ever went beyond that, and that's only because his uncle kind of made him do that as a man, as the man of the house so he would get more worldly experience or something. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, and in this version of it, Miles, too, I mean, since we're talking about Miles, he does have a little bit of the uh, weird sexual stuff going on, but not with his sister in this one. It's with Miss Giddens. Okay. Uh, there's uh, just like in the original story, he's a little bit too familiar with her. He he's he's always calling her my darling, and like there's full on like mouth kisses he does in this movie, which is really creepy <laughs> because he's he. He is a young kid, yes. and she, and and not only is 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 Deborah Kerr, uh, you know, older than him in this movie, but in the original story, she's supposed to be in her twenties, but Deborah Kerr was near forty when she did this oh role, my so God. she's an even older version of the character. No, uh, <laughs> who said that was okay? Who approved that? <laughs> I guess I, the I guess uh, Clayton, the director, did. Jesus, but it's. It's really creepy to see. I mean, like, it's full-on mouth kisses, and he lingers on one of them in particular, and it's like, uh, it's it's hard to watch. Oh, my God. Um, my, Martin Stevens was in Village of the Damned so, uh, before this, so he's used to playing fucking creepy-ass kids. That movie is nothing but creepy-ass kids. Uh, and he was in the Hellfire Club, which is a book by <laughs> Peter Straub that we just, you know, we, we covered a movie by Peter Straub previously. And um, the Hellfire Club obviously is also a reference to the D&D group that's on Stranger Things. And uh, he was in a movie called The Witches. So he was in several horror-related things in his acting career. We have Megs Jenkins playing Mrs. Gross. And I hate to say this, but Megs Jenkins, even though she was a great character actor and she done the part very well in this, she plays the part in this version. Mrs. Gross is not so much as a, she is a busybody still. She's still telling Mrs. Giddens all these, uh, you know, nefarious things and that she caught, you know, Miss Jessel and Peter Quint doing, but she's also in this version, she's way more incredulous. Like in every, even the original version of the story, Mrs. Gross kind of buys into Miss Giddens, like, you know, you know ghost theory or whatever and this one she she kind of like lets her you know run along and do her own thing but you can always even tell by her face that she doesn't believe half the shit that mrs giddens is saying about the ghost yeah it's kind of like really okay you think that they're possessed by evil spirits all right you know <laughs> kind of giving her a look like you're full of shit lady um so I give her credit for acting job in this, but the poor woman looks like she's the female version of uh, Sam Kennison. And I'm not even joking about that. If you <sighs> look at a picture of her from this movie, I, the entire time I was waiting for her to just, you know, start, you know, like look at Miss Jessel and start screaming like, say it, say it, you know, just oh like. Oh my God, no. <laughs> she looks just like a female version of Sam Kennison. <laughs> Uh, and the, and a weird thing about her was she actually played the very same character in another version of this story called Turn of the Screw, a TV movie that was made in 1974. Oh, my so God. I'm she, looking at her photos right now. Is she Does she not look like Sam Kennison? Well, yeah. Now that you've made that reference, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Peter Wingard, and remember these names, people, Clayton and Wingard, because they'll come up again when we do our pod, uh, the section about uh, Bly Manor. Uh, that's where Flanagan took his uh, titles or his or character names is actually from the original Innocence movie, which is a neat little uh, thing that he did. 
But uh, Peter Wingard plays Peter Quentin this, uh, who is uh, obviously the evil, you know, groundskeeper. We've kind of discussed a version of him in the Nightcomers, but in this particular version, it's not really all you have to go by is that he's kind of this evil face that keeps popping up in front of a uh, uh, in front of Miss Giddens, and he uh, and he's also like. Uh, and you and you only know about him because what Miss Gross says about him, which you know Miss Gross was not a fan of either him or Miss Chessel's like relationship, so that kind of flavors everything too. Uh, so Peter Wingard was in Flash Gordon, Night of the Eagle, which is a movie about witches, and uh, he's been he was in a ton of TV series. Uh, we have Clyde Jessup playing Miss Chessel in this. Um, She's uh, the woman in black in this. <laughs> you only really see her from a distance in a black outfit and kind of looking like this evil spirit out in the lake is what she mostly shows up as. She's a, uh, a take of La Llorona. <laughs> which is funny because she was in a movie called Nightmare, which is about a woman in white. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, And also in a movie called Torture Garden. And she was the director and producer on several films, uh, Emma's War, which she was the writer on, and she was writer and director on Flamingo Park and Conrad Martin. So she she had a career both in front and behind the camera. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not that way. <laughs> um, and then we have Michael Redgrave playing the uncle, who is just, uh, actually in this one, he is the most uh, outside of probably Henry Thomas's character uh, in Bly Manor uh, or the haunting of Bly Manor. He's probably the most likable version of the uncle that, that, that hires the governess because I mean, he's, he, you know, he, he's straightforward and he says that it's, you know, that he, you know, doesn't want to have anything with the children. So that makes him, I mean, kind of scummy. Because uh, they are his, you know, niece and nephew, but at the same time, he is, you know, very nice and affable or whatever. Because then the nightcomers, he's just a full on like piece, you know, like very hateful, like you know, type of you know grouch or whatever about it. Yeah. In this one, he's, you know, he's just. It, it goes back to the original story, and that's kind of the the gist of the original story. Turn of the screw is that uh, you get the hint during that story that. Uh, the governess, which doesn't have a name in that one, or Miss Giddens in this one, is infatuated with with the uncle. Uh, she's attracted to his charm and his good looks as a bachelor, and she's doing everything she can to make him happy. As far as like a you know like doing her job at Bly Manor, and that part, and that's part of the reason why the story gets to the point that it does is because he tells her up front he doesn't want to hear anything from her if she's doing her job right then he won't hear from her and so she does everything she can even whenever things start going south to keep from contacting him and that's kind of what leads into all the problems wow um yeah but you get the gist that she's attracted to him and that you know and and her victorian way about going about it she's doing her best to take care of things there so that he's freed up to do what he's supposed to do as the man, you know, like it, cause it, it's got that, you know, gender role assigned oh, to yeah. it. And, uh, and by doing that, then, you know, he will, you know, there, there's, she's got the idea that maybe he will be impressed by her and, you know, potentially even have a love interest in her or something like that. So she's attracted to that um, money. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, he is fairly rich. Uh, yeah. And then he was in 1984 and the importance of burn, uh, being earnest. Um, synopsis for this version is a relatively sheltered governess is hired by a rich bachelor to teach the daughter of his recently deceased 
uh, I don't think it's cousins of this one. I think it really is his niece and nephew uh, because he can't be bothered to give two shits about them otherwise. And upon arriving, she begins experiencing ghostly phenomena and uh, eventually becomes convinced that the children are under the possession of malevolent spirits, despite the fact that no one else will co- corroborate her stories. Uh, unearthly faces are seen in windows. A candlelit Gothic mansion echoes the cries of the dead, and a little Lord Fauntleroy tries to get get with a much older <laughs> woman before she ultimately kills him, which is a lesson for us all, folks. Uh, <laughs> Be careful when you shoot your shot, boys, okay? Yeah, if you're going to go after a cougar, just be ready for a kill you in the at, at the you know when it's all said and done. So especially a cougar named Karen. No, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some little extra notes about this movie. Uh, it was meant to create a bit of ambiguity as to whether the ghosts are real or due to the sexual repression and delusions of Miss Giddens. And I personally would argue that it goes more toward the other side, kind of like Stanley Kubrick did in trying to say that the ghosts are not actually there. Because every time in this movie that Miss Giddens noticed the ghost, it's usually after she's talked to one of the children or Mrs. Gross, or uh, or and then like you know then she sees the ghost in question or whatever. Like you know, uh, the only exception to this is the beginning of the film. Uh, you hear uh, whenever she's first walking up to the the manor and she's looking for Flora, she hears someone saying Flora's name. That's a woman, but like it, but she's the only one that hears it. So, other than that, whenever she first sees like the dark silhouette on the parapet, who is like you know supposed to be, um, you know Peter Quint. It's uh, after she has been, you know, like uh, uh, kind of like uh, his name has been brought up or something about, you know, a man, you know, used to be like Miles's, uh, you know, like uh, confidant before he died or whatever. So she hears about him and then sees the silhouette of him. And then later, I think whenever she actually sees his face, it's after she's seen a photograph of him or or at least or some kind of like visual representation. And that's why he suddenly goes from being like a dark silhouette to actually having to find face because now she knows what he looks like. Um, um, what about being sexually repressed would bring about any, these delusions though? Uh, well, in the original novel, uh, it just, and I think they kind of hinted at this okay. and this a little bit, uh, in the original novel, it's, she is, she's doing such a good job at taking care of the kids and running the the manor the way that the uncle has ordered her to do or hired her to do that. She starts feeling confident in herself and like her abilities as, you know, like a woman and all that. Cause she's supposed to be younger. So it's like, you know, she took on a job that she wasn't qualified for and she's actually doing a damn good job at it. So she's feeling, you know, like proud of herself. And so she starts daydreaming about a potential love interest. And that's when she first sees Peter Quint on the parapet. Okay. And so it's like, and she even mentions that the guy in her daydream is the one she sees on the parapet. So she's basically daydreaming about a lover. And then she sees a man is what it amounts to. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and they kind of hint at in this a little bit, uh, and, and in a weird way with, like, Miles, because, like, you know, even though, like, when Miles starts getting creepy with her, she's not as, like, she don't push him away like you'd figure she should. Like, yeah. I don't know if that was, like, her respect for him because he's the man of the house, technically, or what, but it comes off a little weird, too. Like, so, yeah. you know. Man um, of the house. <laughs> but, <laughs> Uh, but anyways, uh, the movie is uh, filmed in such a way that Miss Giddens uh, experiences the ghostly phenomenon before the audience uh, uh, 
does and we only see it after she is reacting too so there's kind of like a a thing where she sees a ghost in like off camera and then she starts reacting to it and then we see it whenever the camera kind of moves behind her it's like we're shifting to her perspective so it's almost like the movie's telling us the entire time it's like you know when we're seeing the ghost it's always through her eyes so or is there really a ghost there is she making the shit up okay um uh, filters were used at the, at the corner of the camera to make the images fuzzy or blacked out to kind of give it more of like a closed in vibe on her and kind of give you tunnel vision to where you're only really experiencing stuff from her point of view. And, uh, they also did that to, uh, because they were told by the company that made the movie that they were being done in Cinescope, which is like this very, uh, a widescreen image and the, and the director uh, Clayton originally didn't want that. He wanted to be tied around on the, the, you know, female character cause he wanted you with her to kind of give you more of that sense of like, is she really seeing this shit type stuff? And the movie, the, you know, the, the production company kind of fucked him over on that. So that he, he got his like, uh, director of photography to basically create like these uh, tunnels around the edge of the, you know, so even though you're getting a wider screen, you're really not. Cause he kind of cut the edges off. Yeah. Um, and uh, they also did it to simulate the effect that most of the supernatural images are seen at the periphery versus fully on, which oh, is kind yeah. of a neat thing. So they were basically saying that when you see a ghost and even in real life, when a lot of people claim they see one, it's always out of the corner of their eye. It's they did always that. in the perifs. Yeah, so, and that's what they are they did with the camera. You're not really seeing them fully on. You're kind of seeing them at the edge. Okay, um, I like that. Uh, Miss Giddens takes on the dress style of Miss Jessel over the course of the film, and then Miles takes on the manners and dress of Quint. And they kind of, like, slowly throughout the film, they kind of start doing that to kind of get it even more to where it's, like, you know, trying to create a little bit of ambiguity. Uh, kind of where, and it's kind of weird too because Miss Giddens is taking on the role of Peter Quint's lover, and then you know Miles is taking on, you know, so it, it's got that weird vibe. Yeah. Um, and their relationship does kind of change to more of a pedophilic one as, as the movie goes along, which is really gross. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's I not guess... outright, and they don't, you know, but it's there's subtext there. I guess if nothing else, it really drives it home. Like, hey, by the way, these are just spirits, and these people have no control. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what they're going with with it. Um, visually, I mean, it's it's a very well-done movie. Those neat effects they did at the edge of the camera, it's done in black and white, so there's a lot of ways they work that, like, gothic, you know, black, you know, like, imagery in there with the use of shadows of lights, and I'll get in that in the trivia about how they did the light in it, but uh, it's, it's really, I mean, it's really effective that way. They did a pretty good job with the ghost because um, you don't, I mean they had like a visual effect where they had Peter Wingrave and they like pulled him back on like this thing to where it looks like he's floating more than he is walking or something. And, and kind of gave it like this unearthly feel whenever you do see him. And, um, you know, like then the Miss Jessel, you don't really see her face. It's more like this just pale woman who's dressed all in black, standing out in the middle of this like lake or whatever, which is kind of really creepy visual image. Um, so they did well with the visuals on it. Um, the story is very well done, kind of gives you, like I said, I feel like it leans more in the ambiguity toward like hinting that she was just seeing shit because even whenever, uh, she has Mrs. Gross there beside of her, which this is in the novel too, because I listened, uh, I actually listened to it on audible or well on audiobook recently. Um, uh, there's a scene like later on in the movie where, 
like she sees Miss Jessel clearly there and Flora's playing at the edge of the lake and she's telling Miss Gross, she's like, see, I told you. She's like, she sees Miss Jessel and Miss Gross looks out on the water and tells her, she's like, there's nobody there. Like, what are you talking about? And then that's whenever, you know, the governess uh, turns around and says that, you know, tells Flora that she's lying, that she sees her and, uh, you know, and of course this poor little traumatized girl who lost her favorite school teacher just before this lady came in is being told that she's lying about seeing her again. And, yeah. you know, and it's, so it, there's a lot in the movie that to me hints that it's, you know, like they're, they're leaning toward the side of she's baking all this shit up. And it's even worse toward the end of the movie because she, uh, she gets misses after she has that, that encounter, uh, Flora will have nothing to do with her, uh, rightfully. Uh, Mrs. Gross is iffy on her and, and pissed off for good reason. And so she convinces Mrs. Gross to leave with Flora to the town so that she can speak to Miles and see if she can get him to at least admit that there's something different going on. And you just see this reaction between the two of them where, like, he's even more, like, you know, like, trying to step up and look like he's trying to be, like, more of a lover than he is her kid, you know, Ugh. like her you know, charge that way. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, you're seeing it from her point of view. So what is he really talking this way? And then at the end of the movie, you see like every time that, that miles is around Peter Quint's face is off to the side behind him. And he never once admits to her that he sees Peter Quint until like the final moments, just like in the novel. And then whenever he says, you know, like that, that Peter Quint, uh, he, and it's almost played in the sense of way that he's just telling her what she wants to hear. But he says, you know, like, yes, uh, you know, he's a foul beast and he's, you know, been, you know, attacking me and Miss Jessel is, you know, trying to get to Flora. And then right after he says that the poor little child, like, you know, uh, for whatever reason, in the novel, it kind of hints that it's, or Miss, you know, the, the governess thinks it's because the evil spirit, you know, Quinn has left him, and in the process, it kills the kid. But what you get in the movie, it looks like the kid has, like, you know, is just so overridden with anxiety and the stress that she's put on him, trying to get him to admit this, and that she's even like, well, and on, on top of that, in this movie, I think she's outright choking him, and like to get the spirit out of him, and then whenever she comes to, and like Quint's gone, uh, Miles is there, but Miles is dead because he doesn't have any life left in him. So she basically kills this kid to kind of prove that you know, or to, to, in, in the process of trying to get the evil spirit out of him. So wow, okay. <laughs> um, so the whole movie kind of hints that she's just crazy as hell, and she ends up killing a kid because of it, which is a very terrible and creepy idea. Yeah. <laughs> Um, music, the music is decent. It was, it didn't stand out to me a whole lot, but I mean, it, you know, it serves its purpose. Uh, and then the acting is, is top notch. I mean, especially for miles and, uh, and, and, you know, Miss Giddens, because I mean, the movie kind of relies on the two of them and, and for a child actor, the, the kid who's playing miles, it does a very good job. Um, and he was already previously in a very good, uh, high profile movie in the village of damn. So that, that's why they went with him to begin with. Yeah. Uh, to create such sharp visual director of photography, Freddie Francis used lots of huge bright lamps. Uh, Deborah Kerr sometimes had to resort to wearing sunglasses between takes because <laughs> it was so bright. <laughs> and uh, Francis used so many lights that he was jokingly accused of trying to burn down the studios that they were filming in. Hey, just as long as uh, you save the doors, you'll be fine. 
Yeah, save the doors and uh, let the birds die in the rafters, which uh, lost episode, folks. Uh, <laughs> if we ever find it, you might know what we're talking about. Uh, Deborah Kerr was said to have regarded this as her finest performance, and a lot of people have said that about her in this movie. Uh, producer and director Jack Clayton didn't want the children to be exposed to the darker themes of the story, so he never saw the, they never saw the screenplay in its entirety. They were only given the pages uh, that they were supposed to do the day before they were to be filmed to kind of keep them out of the know of uh, what they were actually the movie was about. Oh wow, which is smart, you know. Um, cause it is a very dark theme. I mean, you're literally killing a kid at the end of it. So, oh, whatever. <laughs> Francois Truffaut, uh, uh, regarded this as the best British movie since Sir Alfred Hitchcock had left for America. Oh. Uh, and Miss Giddens, uh, first, when she first arrives at the house, it's a bright sunny day. In fact, Freddie Francis, ha- uh, had done some, uh, had some of the trees actually painted lighter to make that more apparent. What the uh, because hell? the movies, well, the movie's supposed to take place like in the novel, like in around June, but they filmed it in like April in like, you know, England, which is going to be like, you know, cold and overcast and all that. So they had to make it look as sunny and summery as possible. He had the trees um, painted lighter. Like, they painted the leaves like a lighter shade of green? Uh, Well, it was in black and white, so they just had to, you know, contrast them to make them look lighter than they oh would have otherwise. Oh, my God, that's so funny. Uh, the image of the pigeons slowly flying past the camera after uh, the initial shadowy appearance of Peter Quint was a happy mistake. Uh, and in the movie, it, it's, you, it's basically like you're seeing a... Uh, when the pigeons fly past, uh, you know, to kind of obscure the vision of Peter Quint, it's almost like they're moving in slow motion. But what happened was, is whenever they were uh, filming it, the roll of film was running out. And so it sped up the quicker or the more it got toward the, you know, the final part end of the roll. And so whenever they played it back at normal speed, that sped up film actually caused the slow motion effect, which enhanced the dreamy effect of the scene. So they just got lucky. They, you know, and they were just, uh, since that sped up and then it made that weird slowdown effect that gave them a visual effect they didn't have otherwise. That's kind of cool. It really is. And I mean, and they, they, and a lot of people bragged on it and, and told them that it was like one of their favorite things in the movie. And like, it was just, you know, Know, just a mistake yeah. and it worked out for him. Happy little mistake, like Bob Ross would say. <laughs> uh, during the cursed video in the ring, about 25 seconds in, a young boy's muffled singing can faintly be heard. This audio track is taken from The Innocence. Okay. So there's a link. Pretty cool. Uh, Truman Capote uh, took a break from writing In Cold Blood. Uh, that's the, you know, In yeah. Cold Blood's the name of it, in order to write the screenplay for this film. <laughs> Um, and if I remember right, it's, this movie's got like this weird beginning, which is in trivia too, but it's like, it shows like a black screen for like a good long time at the beginning of this. It doesn't show the studio image at all. Like they're, you know, for, and then it, it's one of the first times they ever did this period. And like, it plays that music that's actually in the haunting of Bly Manor that, that the, the kids are always humming or whatever they got. They took that from this movie, like that song that's playing in that, um, which is very cool, but it's, yeah. it's creepy too. Cause you just hear the little kid like humming this, like a uh, weird kind of creepy song. And it's like totally black and it yeah. doesn't show you anything for a good long while. Um, 
At one point, when Miss Giddens wanders around the house at night with only a candelabra for illumination, you think you see something in the corner of your eye. You do. It's the clapperboard, which had briefly wandered into the shop. Oh, my God. Uh, a good thing, though, that they uh, they covered the edges of it so you couldn't really tell. Uh, in every um, fucking scene of Bly Manor, it's a plague doctor. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Yeah, and I and I didn't even notice that until I or I mean while I was watching it. That's it's ridiculous, but it's true. Uh producer and director Jack Clayton decided to keep this uh goof in because he liked the idea of something almost subliminal being uh pres- present to add to the air of unease. A clapperboard though? Well, you can't really tell though, because like I said, they put the uh the tunnel like thing around yeah. the sides of it. So you, that's just uh, so funny. It. Producer and director Jack Clayton was dismayed to learn that 20th Century Fox, that's the company that made it, uh, insisted on making a CinemaScope, and that's the reason, like I said, that he went to that. They also went so far to break up the wide-ass screen by putting several shots to where they had, like, large horizontal, like, uh, or, or large vertical lines, like columns or whatever, directly in the middle of the scene so that it, like, broke up, like, the image and made it, like, into smaller ones. So he, he just really did not like how, like, far, you know, apart, like, everything was because of the, the widescreen nature of what they gave him. Um but he did use in a few scenes the wide space to kind of emphasize the shadowy spaces and the emptiness, uh, you know, to try to create like this empty haunted house like feeling. So he did work that in a little bit. You know, I want to uh, ask you real quick, because that brings up a good topic. Are you a fan of widescreen? Remember when that was a thing in the what early 2000s where it was like, oh, on this DVD, you have the widescreen option or you could buy the widescreen option. What is your preference? I'm- I'm a fan of it if the movie was filmed that way with the intention of you seeing the image that way. But if it was filmed in full frame and they, I mean, it, it watching full frame, you know, it, it just kind of depends on, cause I mean, some of these filmmakers, the good ones, the really good ones put thought into that. And I mean, like, you know, uh, like for instance, Quentin Tarantino's the hateful eight. I mean, he filmed that at even wider screen than what's like, you know, commonly out there because yeah. he wanted to show those big grand vistas of the snowy mountains and all that stuff. And you don't get that effect unless you have that big wide open screen. So, um, but it really depends on the movie. I mean, like, you know, this movie apparently would have been better if it had been full frame, but they didn't give the director the option. So he kind of had to make his own full frame within the widescreen as it were. Yeah, um, my preference is going to be full screen. I do not like white screen. I don't know what my problem is. So, <laughs> once I I didn't whenever I first got into or like whenever it was the first switch over because I was so used to it from as a kid seeing everything in full frame. But when I saw the rest of the picture and some of the stuff, I mean, there's there's some movies that legit they have action going on off screen and the pan and scan stuff. I, I if you go back and watch it, I don't care for anymore because it's like you you you're already zoomed in on the person. So now you have to scan over this artificial scan just to see the extra stuff that was going on the side that would have already been inside the frame to begin with. You know, yeah. If you left it alone. Uh, uh, like I said, this film opens with that creepy song about Paul Dan and uh, George's Arik, uh, which uh, that song alone is, you know, a good enough reason to kind of praise uh, Arik for what he did uh, plays for 45 seconds. Just, over a black screen before 20th century Fox logo appears. Uh, and in some theaters, uh, the projectionists assume this was a mistake and they actually edited the beginning of the movie to where it goes straight to the Fox logo and you don't even hear the music. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so that would have sucked to watch that version of it. Yeah. <laughs> 
producer and director Jack Clayton turned down the offer of Cary Grant to play the uncle. Uh, much of the screenplay was not actually a drive from Henry James novel to turn the screw, but from William Archibald's 1950 Broadway adaptation, the innocence. So this is like a story taken from a play that was based on a, you know, a, a uh, novel. Okay. A dude play or dressed as a dude playing in a dude. Basically. Yes, exactly that. <laughs> Uh, second build for contractual requirements. Peter Wingard does not have a single line of dialogue and only appears in the movie in a handful of short scenes that total far less than one's running time. Um, but you know, he got second billing. So, I mean, he got a lot of credit for that one minute running or actual screen time he had. Holy shit. Clayton went on to great or went to great pains to distance his movie from the Hammer Horror movies, which were enjoying great success at the same time, and that's one of the reasons why he probably hated that trailer because it made it look like it was a Hammer Horror film yeah. that like really played up all this stuff that wasn't there. Stranger Things. Kate Bush was actually inspired by this movie to pin the song "The Infant's Kiss," uh, which appeared on her 1980 album "Never for Forever." So, Kate Bush uh, has a link to this movie. <laughs> Well, kind of strange. Yes, uh, she was running up that road, running up that hill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. The story, the movie is based on the story in a roundabout way that was published in 1898, but the story in this movie takes place over 30 years earlier in the 1860s. Kara's oh. uh, costumes, as well as the narrator and James Novel, who read the manuscript relating uh, Mrs. Ginn's story, make it clear the ghostly event took place three de- decades earlier. So it's actually... In the gist of the uh, story itself, it's actually, you know, time-wise, it's it's legit because, I mean, this is a weird thing that the story did. The story starts out, and it's like these people are around Christmas because, remember, this was a, actually a Christmas tradition in Britain uh, that they were telling ghost stories, you know, for Christmas. And, uh, you know, they, this one guy who's at the party, you know, tells them he has a story that would beat all of their stories. And he's actually got it written down from the person who related it to him. So he, so you have a male narrator who is reading, uh, the governess's story to these other people, you know, uh, and it happened 30 years before Okay, and, uh, doesn't. And, but the way that the story ends is really weird because you would think that they would come back to it and kind of say something about how did she get by with the fact that, you know, Miles was dead at the end of it and all that. But the story literally cuts off with the end of her book, which or you know, the one that she wrote down, which is where she was cradling the dead Miles in her hand, and that's all you get out of it. So you never go back to that original party to kind of see what everybody's reaction was to that. Well, not ending um, the story completely seems to be the M.O. of these films, some of them anyways. <laughs> Uh, that's true, uh, especially on the turning. Yes. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But um, anyways, I, I think it's cool in Bly Manor that they take they go back to the source material and they actually bring that, you know, somebody is telling the story at a party, you know, uh, you know, bookend back into the whole thing. I, I think that's neat that Flanagan did that in his version. Yeah. Uh, the cinematography in this is so admired that aspects of it were imitated many years later in Nine Inch Nails video for the perfect drug, most notably the man on the tower scene. I love that song in that video. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I mean, it, he took inspiration from this movie. Uh, in an interview in U.S. Today, uh, August 22nd, 2011, Guillermo del Toro chose this as one of his six favorite frat flicks. Oh, 
And that would make sense, though, because we already talked about it. Guillermo del Toro basically could write, uh, you know, or teach a class on gothic. Uh, yes. You know, ghost stories. And this is the ultimate gothic ghost story. So this would definitely be up his alley of what he would like to watch. Absolutely. I'm surprised he has an adapted version of it. That might have been what his crimson uh, uh, peak was supposed to be, but mm, that was a dull one. Mm. Harold Pinter and John Mortimer also worked on the screenplay. The former advised Jack Clayton that he uh, should not use flashbacks and later was brought in to Victorianize the script. Uh, Megs Jenkins later reprised her role, like I said, in The Turn of the Screw, 1974. And that movie has Michael Redgrave's daughter, Lynn Redgrave, playing the governess, Miss uh, uh, Jane uh, Cubberly. Weird thing about these movies, like multiple times, like the actors in one film, like their descendants would play the a similar character or another character of the turn of the screw in a later movie. It's like they keep like these families keep redoing these films uh, amongst each other. Uh, this is the feature film debut of uh, Pamela Franklin. Uh, Joe Dante cites this is his favorite horror movie. That's probably why he hates the trailer so much for it. Uh, makes Jenkins was only four years older than Deborah Kerr when she did this, although she looked like she was about 20. So I, poor thing. She looked like an old version of Sam Kennison. Ah. (laughs) And uh, two of Michael Redgrave's children, one of his grandchildren later appeared in different adaptations of story. Uh, We've already said that uh, Lynn played in Turn of the Screw 1974. His son, Corin played the professor in Turn of the Screw 2009. And his granddaughter, uh, Jolie Richardson, played Darla Mandel in The Turning which we're going to discuss here shortly in 2020. So Jesus Christ, uh, how many Red adaptions Graves, of this story is there? A million? Uh, there, there is 35 adaptations of this movie no. put, or, or this story put to film. Yep. It's too much. <laughs> it's too much. Uh, this was one of the features that led to 20th Century Fox revising their policy that all CinemaScope features would be shot in color. Uh, the character of Miss Giddens was supposed to be much younger than the 39-year-old Deborah Kerr was at the time of the filming. Uh, the cast includes two Oscar nominees, Deborah Kerr and Michael Redgrave. Earlier on in the story, Miss Giddens describes her predecessor, the wayward Miss Jessel, as a woman in black. For much of the film, Miss Giddens is dressed in brightly colored or pure white costumes. As it progresses, however, she wears darker clothes until the finale where she's dressed all in black, and that's whenever she kills Miles. Uh, birds singing prominently on the soundtrack are Nightingale and European Scoops Owl. Uh, the background of Sheffield Park in East Essex, England, serves as a setting for the stately home and gardens in the film. The garden, originally designed by uh, Capability Brown, is now owned by the National Trust and is a popular visitor attraction. Uh, Martin Stevens had originally worked with Deborah Kerr in Count Your Blessings, playing her son, which makes it even creepier uh-uh. that he kisses her full on the lips in this one. Oh! <laughs> the film is often cited along 1944's The Uninvited and 1963's The Haunting as one of the three best ghost movies of all time. All three were made in black and white and tend to rely on psychological terror rather than graphic horror. I would say, though, I've watched The Uninvited, and The Uninvited is a very, very good ghost story, and it's actually scarier than this movie, so I don't know where they get that it's more psychological because they had some damn good ghost effects in that 1944 movie. Okay. Uh, Pamela Franklin is less than seven months younger than Martin Stevens, who plays her older brother. Wow. There is a there is a reference to Reverend Fennel. Albert Fennel was the executive producer. The movie was a big career break for veteran film editor Jim Clark. 
uh, him and Clayton became close friends and regular drinking buddies uh, <laughs> during the production because they were both recently divorced and lived near each other. But in his 2010 memoir, Dream Repairman, Clark described the editing of this movie uh, as easy, easy and pleasurable experience, largely because of producer and director Jack Clayton's meticulous approach to filmmaking. Uh, but because uh, he described Clayton as a big drinker, he used to tipple all day, uh, mostly brandy, and, and said he was a chain smoker. He also noted that Clayton had a perverse sense of humor uh -huh. and expressed a view that Clayton, who in his view was highly influenced by his earlier uh, contact with John Houston, also emulated Houston's sadistic sense of practical joking. So basically what this amounts to is that Clayton had a personal assistant named Jeannie Sims who did a lot of work on this film but she had been burned very badly as a child, leaving scars on her hands and face. Clayton went out of his way to always make sure that she ended up having to play a character doused in fire or very close to fire in every film that he did with her. Now, what how fucking fuck? evil is that? Holy how shit. How evil is that? Yeah. <laughs> and... um Clark also revealed that while generally charming and revered by his crew, Clayton was sometimes prone to outbursts of extreme anger. He recounted an incident when Jeannie Sims, the same one that had been mistreated, uh, was unavoidably late calling Clayton with the reviews of the, the London critics screening the movie because, and uh, which caused Clayton, uh, which Clayton was too nervous to attend. So basically, Clayton sent Jeannie Sims, his assistant, to go watch this, you know, like the screening of the movie with these London critics. Got pissed off at her because. You know, uh, she was so late in calling him back, but that's because the screening was held up for over half an hour because of problems getting uh, one particular senior movie critic uh, who was wheelchair-bound into the theater itself. And uh, whenever she did return the call, uh, call Clayton Ashen-Faced uh, explained, uh, or, or whenever she did return it, Clayton basically flew into a rage, viciously berated her over the phone for being late, uh, and then whenever she called Clark to come to Clayton's office through the next morning, he arrived to find the night before Clayton had completely smashed the large uh, plaster scale model of the Bly house, uh, the fictional location of the movie that they, and, and the two of them refused to, sp and, and refused to speak to either Clark or Sim. So wow. basically he blew up over this, even though he sent her in his stead and like gave her shit over it. Uh, they patched things up long enough to be able to uh, do the movie The Pumpkin Eater, which is why I brought up the fact that one, you know, one of the actors in the Nightcomers was in Pumpkin Eater. That's a weird, you know, thing that the connection between all these movies too. Uh, but uh, it, but after it was released, Clayton inexplicably sent Clark a highly abusive letter him for the commercial failure of The Pumpkin Eater. Although Clark later figured that actually what he thinks happened was that Jeannie Sims tired, basically tired of the Clayton shit, uh, falsified the letter and made it look like, you know, um, that Clayton had sent it, you know, she was just tired of her boss's shit. And so she sent this letter saying, you know, trying to get the, these two guys to like hate each other because I guess she was just tired of the whole thing. Um, and he, he knew that Clayton never used a typewriter, so it was kind of uh, uh, because the fact the letter was typed, he was pretty sure that Sam sent it. So wow. there's a lot of drama with these yeah. people. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, Deborah Kerr shared her September 30th birthday with screenwriter Truman Capote. Uh, this was Clyde Jessup's debut. According to Gerald Clark's biography of Truman Capote, um, 
uh, he has all, he always felt like that he messed up in this one particular scene in the movie where Miss Giddens happens upon Miss Jessel at a school, like the, the, the desk in the schoolroom, because Miss, when Miss uh, Giddens comes over, she finds a tear still left on the, the, the desk, uh, from where Miss Jessel was crying or, and, and he, he feels like it's the one thing in the movie that kind of tips it over the other side saying that the ghosts were real versus her imagination. But to his credit, like I, I saw that scene and I was just like, well, it could have been a roof leak and the way that this woman was trying to believe everything. I wouldn't have, you know, I didn't take it the way that, that Capote probably felt like it was. Uh, 20th century Fox executives were highly nervous about the admittedly unsettling scene in which miles passionately kissed skins directly on the lips. So at least somebody cared about that. Yeah. Uh, Peter Quint's unworthily appearance at the window was achieved by putting Wingard on a trolley and wheeling him up to and then away from the window. And then child star Martin Stevens dies in his two most famous movies, uh, this one and Village of the Dam. So two movies that Martin Stevens is was in as a, as a child actor. He was killed in both of them. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Justin Long always loses his eyes. Gets, loses his eyes. Yeah. Uh, that's a uh, spoiler you know. for some folks. Uh. Rating of this, because uh, I know that I mean, you had limited time, and I don't blame you. This you wouldn't like this movie. It, it's Ugh. very, it's slow. It's a slow psychological burn more than it is anything else. I can't do it. Uh, uh, this one I would rate a three point nine. I, I enjoy the psychological as, psychological aspects. I enjoy the how it's filmed, the the way that they did the visuals and and the acting. But this is not a film that I that I really like to rewatch. Like the Uninvited is one that that, that I really loved when I watched it, and uh, but this one, just I, I mean I I will go back to it on occasion, but it's not one I'm going to see myself watching all the time, and that's why I bumped it down because it just doesn't have anything there to bring me back all the time to it. You know, you know that I have a hard time with old with older type films, and I'm going to tell you right now, I just know that I would not be able to get past that little kid kissing the lady on the lips. I would have freaked <laughs> I out. Blame I blame you if you, if you Yeah, couldn't. I would have been like, why? The whole time. I would have been like, but why did that happen? And it would have nothing to do with the scene I'd be watching. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, So we'll, we'll end that one there. We'll go on to the, the next movie we're discussing. <laughs> 